I want to bring everyone's attention to something that occurred here yesterday. Some of you might be aware, some of you may not be. But yesterday, this room was filled with a bunch of gifts. And there's pictures of them popping up soon. It's like, just, just Google toys real quick, Google images, fake it. Okay, so this room was filled with a bunch, of, a bunch of toys. Now that's just one section of it. It's kind of hard to see, but that says two to four. So that's gifts for two to four year olds. And all of these gifts came in because of this church's generosity. We participated in a number of things. This is the Bridge Christmas store. I'll explain more about it in a moment, but there's also Angel Tree. We also gave away 50 Christmas trees, partnered with One Tree Giving. But that's just two to four section. That's nine to 12. Nine to 12. Some good pocket knives in there. <laughs> Five to eight, that's over there. Then you got six to 24. It's like pellet guns and stuff in there. Six to 24. That's six to 24 months. Um, but six to 24, some of you are like, I should have come check that out, man. Get a, there's a 20, 23 year old present in there. So, uh, the, it, it, this room was just filled with all these gifts. And the reason why I, I love the Bridge Christmas store so much is the, kind of the strategy behind it is that we allow parents to sign up if they think they can't afford uh, Christmas gifts for the season for their kids. And that may, some of you might be in that spot. People in the community are in that spot. Tons of people find themselves in that spot. And what happens is the parent could come and pick out gifts and then the parent goes and wraps them and gives them to their children. And the reason for that is we don't want children receiving gifts from other people besides mom and dad. We want the dignity to be maintained in the household so that the parents could have the joy of giving gifts to their children. Um, so it's an incredible ministry. In all, with those gifts, with angel tree and Christmas tree, there was more than 500 gifts and trees and stuff given away to families directly in this community. Uh, just in the past couple days. <clears throat> that's, that's, just, that's just Gilroy, by the way. Hollister's one is next week. So that's 500 just from the Gilroy campus, and then we'll get even more. And I heard they just killed it with, with bringing in gifts. So we'll see that those results next week. Um, this is one of many things that I want to highlight as we come to the year end. If you've been at this church for some time, you know that in the month of December, we rely on a significant giving month. 25, uh, roughly 25% of our budget comes in in the month of December. This is what is similar for all nonprofits in the country. So to, to say it in another way is like, all of your income comes in throughout the year, but 25% comes in in the month of December. So we rely on that extended generosity, just like every nonprofit in the month of December. So typically around this time, I highlight the things we're doing, major accomplishments. I can't go, go over them all. There's, there's so much that you are doing through giving of your money and time, but I just usually like to highlight some. So that was a big one. Um, some of you have read the year-end letter that I sent out last week. I highlighted the fact that last year we've launched the, our three microsites, and going into 2020, we have plans to launch a fourth microsite, which is great. I said we continue to disciple over 500 children and youth every week. There's a crazy amount of kid, children and youth coming in through these doors throughout the week. So if you include Sunday morning right now, and then you include midweek programming, junior high, youth group, branch, you include Awanas, you include everything that's taking place in both our English and service campuses in Gilroy and Hollister, there's tons of children and youth coming through here. And that's because of the faithful service that you've given through your time, your money. We also 
uh, continue to fund new life for the children. It's an orphanage in Haiti that has 25 orphans. That's pretty much completely funded by this church. And so that's 25 children who are given food, shelter, the gospel, they're cared for and they're loved because of the generosity of this church. We continue to support pro-life ministries and form choices in Hollister Pregnancy Center. <clears throat> Something new that you'll be hearing more about in 2012, 2020, 2012. Wouldn't it be cool? I got a lot to talk about. I don't want to, I was going to get caught up talking about Back to the Future, but I'm not going to do it. Partnered with International Justice Mission to make the Dominican Republic a new focus country for the church with a specific goal of targeting sex trafficking. And we can't even count it up, but literally we've volunteered thousands of hours pouring into our local community. So <clears throat> this church is doing tons and it's because of your generosity, both with your time and money. And so I ask you in the month of December to know and understand that we rely on an extended outpouring of generosity, 25% of our Budget needs to come in the month of December. That's roughly $200,000 above normal ties and offerings for church-wide, um, both campuses in Gilroy and Hollister, English and Spanish. And so please prayerfully consider how you might help us meet that year in goal and start 2020, 2020 off right. One of the reasons why we have to have a strong financial year end, in addition to just the 25% thing, is we have this massive, awesome, good problem. We have a, we have a space issue in both Gilroy and Hollister. And it's not just necessarily like we wanna get a bigger sanctuary um, to fit more people in, that's not what I'm talking about. We have serious space issues concerning our children and youth. So our children and youth programs are packed out. If you were to go to Hollister right now, there is, there's kids everywhere and we only have a, like a little bit of uh, space to work with so we're trying to be creative on what we can do with that. Additionally here, uh, on Wednesday night, I stopped by our junior high program because I've been uh, volunteering to do security Wednesday night at Awana's. It's been pretty, I don't wear the yellow vest though, ever, ever, ever for security because I don't want the bad guys to know that I'm watching them. That just lets them know. So I just sneak around and because the way I look, they usually ask me if I want to help in whatever bad guy things are going to do. And so... No, that's how, so it's, you know, something I do on the side for Awana's, but I go over to the junior high and it is packed out with junior hires. I couldn't even count them. Junior, because junior hires are hard to count. They, you know, they, they, don't, they don't stay still. <laughs> just jumping everywhere. So there's, I mean, just we're, we're filled. <clears throat> Awanas has tons of kids. So we have all these ministries and programmings going on, programs going on. And we're not doing anything crazy like looking to, to build a new church or anything like that. We're looking about how to be creative um, in this economy with adding extra space, whether that's trying to lease more space for youth rooms or trying to do some projects here. We don't have it planned. We don't have any thoughts yet necessarily, but we want to be as financially sound as possible going into 2020 to be as prepared as possible for what the Lord might have of us. Yeah, you just reach that age and you know, some of you, yours isn't 2012. Yours is like, as we go into the year 2000, uh, it's like, you know, it's like you don't even believe we're in the year 2000. We're already past, I joked about this before, we're already past the future and back to the future. That's how, do you know, okay, this is the last thing real quick. Do you know, you know the DeLorean? I found this out from Branson Cork. You know the DeLorean and back to the future? That thing looks like a piece of junk. Do you know how much those cost now? They're like $40,000 to get a, a DeLorean. So if any of you have a DeLorean, 
and you'd be willing to donate it <laughs> to the Isaac Serrano Bridge Christmas store. Please include the flux capacitor on it, and I want to make sure it runs off banana pills like it does in that movie. Okay. <clears throat> Same warning as last week. Same warning as last week. If you got young children in the room, we're dealing with mature content. You as a parent can decide uh, if you want to keep them in here. I'm not going to say anything that's not in the Bible, but we are in the Old Testament and in some crazy stories, so there will be some mature content delivered. <clears throat> uh, the series is called Prepare Him Room, and we're looking at how God, through specific people in the Old Testament, prepared room for his son to come into the world. Now, the interesting twist of this is we started with the genealogy of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew. And you may not think genealogies are fun or the best place to start a Christmas series, but it actually is. And we're focusing in on several names that appear in Matthew's genealogy. Last week we talked about Tamar, this week we'll talk about Rahab, and we'll cover Ruth next week. Now as we established last week, this is incredibly important. Women's names were not included in genealogies in Jesus' days. This is an exception. It would stand out. Additionally, when genealogies were shaped, you would highlight the best of the best in your family tree. You would bring out the stories of like, oh yeah, we got to remember when great uncle, uncle, great uncle so-and-so did this. Yeah, his name gets in the family tree. So you'd shape it to give honor to your family. You could also leave names out that, you know, brought shame to maybe the family name. And some of you, you know what I'm talking about. Like if you're doing a family tree, you're drawing it up, working it with your grandkids, and then you start to put in, you know, Uncle Bubba's name. Mm, you just get the, you know, we're not going to include Uncle Bubba in this family tree, man. We're just going to leave Uncle Bubba out. So you could shape it. There's an Uncle Bubba in the room shaking his head right now. Um, so the biblical authors include the names of women, and each one of these women are the people who you would not expect to appear in a first century Jewish genealogy. But Matthew is insistent that their names are there. Last week was Tamar, with an incredible story if you were here, and this week is Rahab, a name you would not expect to be in the genealogy of the king of kings, but it's there and it's there for a reason. This is her story. <clears throat> we pick up her story in the book of Joshua at the very beginning, chapter two. Now just a brief context for the book of Joshua. Joshua's setting is right after the Exodus period. Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, and he takes them into the wilderness on track to the promised land. Moses and pretty much everyone dies in the wilderness and the next generation is led by Joshua and they're coming out of the wilderness wanderings into the promised land. God says, Joshua, you're my guy, you're the leader, teach the people to be faithful, follow my law, do not fear, and I will give you the promised land. <clears throat> Joshua begins with Joshua sending spies to check out the promised land to see who's there and this is where our story picks up. <clears throat> And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you may know how this story goes. So you're going like, okay, nothing's gonna, nothing, nothing weird is going to happen. But... When men go into 
brothels and prostitutes house, or they go into, in the Old Testament, they go into Gentile territories where there's cultic prostitutes and they worship other gods. Israelite men usually sin. So there's kind of this expectation like, oh man, they're setting foot on the promised land. And Joshua has sent out spies. And where do they go? Of course. By the way, someone else sent out spies before in this story, and they were not faithful, only two. And now again, you have Joshua sending out two spies. Now, uh, I want to talk about Rahab for a moment, who's just introduced to us as a prostitute. Oftentimes, we look at women who are described as prostitutes with eyes that are not necessarily, in my mind, the eyes of God. And what I mean by that is both in ancient and modern times, a woman who finds herself in prostitution is looked down upon. It's like, this is a promiscuous woman who's selling her body for sex. She's just trying to make money and she's willing to do something shameful. And so prostitutes historically have a horrible reputation and they're looked down upon and, and talked down upon. Now, prostitution in the Bible is clearly a sin. It's a no-no. However, in order to understand this character and to have better eyes, you have to reassess your opinion of a prostitute. And this is why. Little girls, picture a five-year-old girl. Do five-year-old girls dream about the day when they will be selling their body for sex? Do they say, when I grow up, I want to be a prostitute. I want to make lots and lots of money, so I'm going to sell my body and become a prostitute. That's never the dream of a little girl. See, sometimes guys, we don't think through these things because we're wired differently. We're just wired differently. But a little girl doesn't, doesn't dream about that profession. What happens? Not all of the time, not all of the time, but many times, women who find themselves in situations of prostitution have a story where they've been abused, neglected, or abandoned. And if you talk with people who are in ministry reaching prostitutes today, they will tell you, the horror stories of women and their childhood and their first marriage and their teenage years and the horror stories of men mistreating them and then women find themselves in a place of shame without a mean for provision and they enter into these roles. Now, not all the time, but I'm telling you, most of the time, little girls don't dream of growing up to do that. They're hurt, they're abused, they're neglected. In the ancient world, this would be even more true. How did people become prostitutes in Rahab's day? Well, one, maybe your husband died. We talked about this last week. How if your husband would die, you'd either have family that could provide for you or you would become a beggar or a prostitute. There's no such thing as women in the workplace in the ancient world. Can't be an independent woman making all the money. So you beg or become a prostitute. Or maybe your husband just abandons you. You didn't give him any kids. It's your fault. So you're abandoned. Maybe your husband just divorces you. He's tired of you. Or um, maybe you were sold into prostitution. Do you know how many little girls had their own parents sell them into prostitution in human history? I wanted a son. This is just another daughter. Let her make some money for the family. Or maybe you're captured, you're kidnapped, you're a prisoner of war, you're the war spoils. Or maybe, and this may be what's occurring in Rahab's story, 
Because in Rahab's story, it's unique. Her, her mom and dad are there. She has family there. And so we're not given the details, but you kind of, kind of speculate historically what could lead to this. Maybe dad is disabled. Maybe dad was wounded in battle and he can't work anymore. And you were the oldest sister, the firstborn, and you know that the other little brothers and sisters in your family are going to starve if you don't figure out a way how to make a buck. So we don't know, but I just want us to have different eyes as we look at some of these characters because little girls don't dream about this. They don't look forward to this stuff. Things happen, and usually, not always, it's because abuse, neglect, and abandonment. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho said to Rahab, saying, bring out, that man who, who ha- bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. It's interesting. Um, it's, the guy is described as the king of Jericho. Don't picture Jericho as some big giant empire with like giant city walls and there's a, there's a king that has huge mil- military forces. Jericho at this time period is, is like a city state, <clears throat> much smaller maybe two, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 people, kind of like a military outpost, and the king is a glorified mayor or like a, a governor with too much authority. And the king hears that there's these spies in the land. He's going, you know, we got, we got to find them. And then the anticipation in the story build because he asked Rahab, have they been here? But the last sentence, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them at the stalks of flax then she, that, that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon As the pursuers had gone out, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, dot, dot, dot. I just want to pause here because um, she's clearly hiding them. She's lied to the king. She's hiding them in in the flocks. And she said, go get them. They're they're outside of the city gates. Go find them. You can probably catch up with them. And now she's going to have a conversation with the two spies. And what's about to occur is a lengthy monologue by Rahab. Now, you need to know it's one of the longest monologues in the book of Joshua. That's important because in literature of this time, women are not given long monologues in the literature. Their words don't matter that much at this time. But in the book of Joshua, the woman is going to get one of the longest monologues and the woman is a prostitute. This is what she tells the two spies. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God... For he is God in heavens above and on earth beneath. Essentially, it's a long monologue saying, we heard about your God. I heard about him. 
and I don't want to mess with him. I want to be on his team. So yes, I'm a pagan, I'm a prostitute, I'm a woman, and I have these gods and goddesses who I've served, but I've heard about yours, and he looks super strong. I want to be on his team. Now question, at this point, does Rahab love the Lord her God? There's nothing in here that would would say, she's not like, I've heard of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and I want to love him with all my heart, soul, and might. She's just like, he's super strong. We heard about what you did to the Egyptians. I don't want him against me. I want to be on his team. So this is where some commentators and teachers will say, Rahab isn't necessarily becoming a a true convert, someone wanting to serve the true living God. She just wants to save her neck. She just wants to save her neck. Now, in a sense, that's true. All Rahab wants to do right now, save her neck. She wants to survive. But that doesn't go deep enough. Got to go further than that. Because she is saying, I have a fear of this God. I have a fear. I've heard about who he is and what he's done, so I want to be on his team. Now, that may sound like just wanting to save your neck, just being afraid of what he could do to you. But where does the Bible say wisdom begins? The fear of the Lord is the first step of wisdom. So this might not be a fully fledged, full on conversion at this point. Her theology probably isn't that good at this point. But the first step is fear of the Lord. That's where wisdom begins. You can see how this could play out in our culture, right? Like, before maybe we have a massive revival where people are saying, I just want to love Jesus. I want to volunteer at Awanas and kids' ministries. Maybe our culture could just recognize that we have become a sinful, wicked people and there is a holy and just God and there will be hell to pay for human evil. That might be the first step in wisdom, just saying, hey, I don't want to mess with that. And then so much others can follow. Because as soon as someone shows fear of God, what does God usually say? (coughs) Fear not. The first step is fear. The second is fear not. So right now she's saying, I believe that this God is a powerful God and I want to be on his team. Then now, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save Alive, my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our lives for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. There's that interesting thing about her mom and dad still being there. Again, in this time, if a woman entered into prostitution, she would be disowned by the father and not considered a part of the family. That's a shameful deed. You're not a part of the family. You're cut off. But for whatever reason, we don't know the historic situation. They're still together. And so we can speculate. Maybe the dad is injured in war. Maybe he's disabled. Maybe he's sick. We don't know. But this woman has entered into a situation where now she's looking to provide and care and ultimately save her family from this coming destruction. I highlighted the words kindly because in Hebrew, this word kindly is chesed. And we've talked about chesed in the past before. In our English Bibles, it's often translated as mercy or kindness. But kind of those words are too weak. 
Like being kind doesn't capture the strength of chesed. Chesed is a, like a covenanted faithfulness. It's this idea that I am in a covenant with you and I will be faithful to you. And in being faithful to you, mercy and goodness will pour unto you. In Psalm 23, there's the, for the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It ends by saying, surely goodness and kindness will follow me all the days of my life. It's surely goodness and chesed will follow after me. Interesting note, the word for follow in Hebrew, uh, it has a nuance of predation, a nuance of chasing after or pursuing. So it's, it's not like I follow after you like I'm being annoying and pestering you. It's the follow that a lion does to its prey. It's a pursuit. So it's surely goodness and chesed will pursue you like a lion all the days of your life. It's powerful. This is the word Rahab evokes. I've been kind to you. I've been chesed to you. Now you chesed to me. And they agree. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into a city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills where the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. So they basically are making this agreement. We're gonna, we're gonna stay true, don't worry about it. But there's this interesting note that says Rahab lives in the city walls. Now, this is more speculation. We don't have a ton of information about the people who would live in the city walls at this time period. But there's a good chance that the people who lived in the city walls were the people who were the the farthest from being a part of the inside cool group. They were the outside group. Think about it. Um, There's a king of Jericho. King of Jericho would live where in the city? in the center, in his house that's better than everyone else's, right? Then who lives around the king in the center? His family. And who lives around them? Friends and nobles, the people who are the elite of the city. And the further you go out from the king's place, the more of an outcast type of people you see. So it's possible, this is speculation, that Rahab is the prostitute who lives in the city walls because she's in the outcast group. We can't be certain. All we know for her now is Rahab is the prostitute who lives in the city walls. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father, your mother, your brothers, and your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They kind of review the plan, and the plan looks like this. You put a scarlet cord on the window. Put a scarlet cord on the window. And whoever is in your house at that time shall be saved from destruction. If there's no scarlet cord on the window, there's no blood on our hands. Now, if you're a Christian 
and you're kind of reading these stories, you immediately start to wonder, what's up with the scarlet cord on the window? Like, is that symbolic of something? Why out of every, anything is that there? Again, this is more speculation, but it could be. It could be that the scarlet cord is just the simple symbol of prostitution, that this place is a brothel. And you say, why, why would you think that? Well, let's say you want to give a clue to an invading army that your house is the one to be spared. You don't want to signal to the other people in Jericho anything suspicious, right? If you don't want to be caught turning on the bat signal, don't get on your roof and turn on the bat signal because you just go to where it's at and there's the guy giving the symbol. Rahab doesn't want to do anything that would give the plan away. It's just to look normal. So it's possible that just the scarlet cord is the normal symbol of prostitution in Jericho. And so they say, keep that up there. Keep the scarlet cord on the window. Put it there so that I can tell everyone else to leave that house alone when we come in. Speculation, we don't know. Ultimately, what happens is the armies of Joshua come in and they do this long kind of like dance, this like Macarena thing for like seven days around Jericho. They're singing and they're dancing and then trumpets blast and the city walls fall down. And if you grew up in church, there's songs that talk about the walls falling down. You know this. And then Rahab and her family are saved because the scarlet cord is on the window. What I'd like to do now, though, is is back up a little bit so we can understand the radical nature of this story. This story is radical and subversive. It tweaks with our assumptions and it breaks down our assumptions. This is the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is a book about God's people entering into the promised land. And it's concerned with the holiness of God and God's people being holy now that they are in the promised land. There are Israelites who sin in the book of Joshua and God's like, I am holy, you have to be holy. This man put to death. It's all about holiness in the holy land. So then why do you start off that story with a narrative about a pagan Gentile woman prostitute who is a hero. The spotlight is on her, the pagan Gentile woman prostitute. Completely absurd for the literature of this time. It just doesn't work this way. Why would you do that? Now, a couple things. Not only does Joshua paint Rahab as a woman of faith, As we started off with, Rahab is included in the genealogy of Jesus. When Matthew is telling his story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he's going the genealogy. And he could be like, nope, don't include Uncle Bubba. What he does, make sure Rahab's there. Tamar's there. Rahab's there. Don't leave her out. She matters. Against the expectations of the culture. In addition to Matthew, the New Testament also puts... Rahab up as a pillar and example of faith and works. Hebrews 11 says this, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now in Hebrews, if you're familiar with this passage, it's a passage called the Hall of Faith. It's called the Hall of Faith because the author just goes off and lists lists all the heroes of the Old Testament. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Isaac did this. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, so-and-so did this. And then he's like, yep, and by faith, Rahab did this. Don't leave her out. Don't leave her out of the list. Include Rahab. 
Then, whoa. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> if we can go back to the Hebrews, uh, Hebrews slide. Let's skip to Hebrews. We don't need to see the presence again because you're not getting any of them. Okay, so Hebrews says, by faith, she does all these things. Then in the book of James, James says that by her works, Rahab was justified. So James is going, if you want an example of good works, look at Rahab. And this, of course, brings up, uh, and we're not going to spend time with it because James actually resolves it. There's this issue of, well, is, is Rahab, is she an example because of her faith or because of her works? Is she justified by faith or is she justified by works? And simply stated, you are saved by faith. But faith, genuine faith, received, receives grace that's freely given to you. And if you've received true grace from God and you've received it by faith, then that faith which is given to you will be manifest in the external world somehow. And what I mean by that is, you can't just say, I've received grace, I'm a Christian now, and nothing about your life changes. You are saved by the free gift of God, but once you freely receive that gift, it manifests in the world. So in other words, Rahab couldn't go, oh, I've heard about your God. Uh, I want to be on his team. Okay, so tie the scarlet cord there. Nah, that's too much to ask. But I believe in my heart that he's, a, he's an awesome God. It's like, no, if you truly believed in your heart that this God is whom he says he is, then you will put the scarlet cord on the door. So faith, genuine faith, is what saves you. And it's the free gift of grace, but it leads to works. And that's what James says. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So Rahab, again, is picked up as this example of faith and works. <clears throat> now back to our original question. Why does the book of Joshua start with this story? It's a book about holiness and the holiness of God and no sin should be allowed in the land. And then Rahab is incorporated. It's because of this. The Bible is consistently subverting your expectations and assumptions. It's saying those who you think are on the outside might actually be on the inside. And those who you think are on the inside might actually be on the outside. Those who appear to be within the family of God, maybe not so certain. And those who you might say, they would never be in the family of God. Watch, watch God work. In the life of ministry, do you see, in the life and ministry of Jesus, what do you see? Who do you think in Jesus' time would be the ones on the inside? The religious elite, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Who does Jesus continually pick a fight with? The Pharisees. And then who's on the outside? The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the drunkards. And, and, and what does Jesus get accused of? He's hanging out with all the people who should be on the outside. And then there's these parables about invitations going out to a banquet. And you'd be surprised who the invitations go to and who's actually included in this feast. So the Bible is consistently subverting your expectations about whose heart is actually right. Those who you think might be on the in, they might have had no heart change. And those who you think are on the outside, like Rahab the prostitute, they might actually get incorporated into the family of God. I watched a video last night 
several videos. It was like 10 years old. And it was videos of a group of pastors from like 10 years ago talking about controversial stuff. And I'm looking at it. There's about eight of them. And they're so gifted. And they're all pastors from really famous big churches 10 years ago. Big, big churches, famous pastors, so smart and so brilliant. I'm just watching and I'm going, these guys are so good, so smart. Of those eight from 10 years ago, only two have remained faithful. Six have fallen away. Those who are on the inn might not be. And those who you are so certain will always be on the outside might just be brought in by God. Now, this is good news, very good news, especially for a particular type of person. For the person who resonates with Rahab's story, and what do I mean by that? It doesn't mean you were a prostitute, but you've lived a life where you've been abused, neglected, abandoned, mistreated, You have a life of shame and guilt. And maybe because of that, you found yourself in situations doing things that you didn't necessarily want to do. Maybe you jumped from one relationship to another, to another, to another. And you went from one promiscuous relationship to another. And you were just trying to have sex with different men because something about you didn't feel right. Maybe it's because dad wasn't there. Maybe it's because you were abandoned as a child. Maybe it's because you were abused or neglected. But women find themselves in the ancient world and the modern world in horrible situations because men have failed them. And so you're reading this story and you're going, that's me, man. I know what it's like to feel shame. I know what it's like to be abandoned and neglected. And you know what? When you get abandoned and neglected and abused and forgotten so much, you start to actually think you deserve it. You know, think about... This is some of your stories. Think about a little girl. Picture a girl six years old who has her father abandon her, never to talk to her again. How does she tell herself, I have worth? Man, my dad didn't even love me enough to stay. As a pastor, I know this is some of your stories. My dad, how does she she begin to build self-worth? And so you feel on the outside and you get into things you would never want to do, but man, life spirals out of control, and you find yourself in a situation with shame, guilt, and then even worse, you may think you deserve all of that, that you've earned all of it. And so why is the story of Rahab in there? Because at the beginning of the book of Joshua, God wants to establish that even the pagan Gentile woman prostitute is loved by God and invited in to his family. Rahab is saved and her entire family is incorporated into the people of Israel. And not only was she saved from that destruction, she's going to be in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Great-grandmother of the king. Great-grandmother of the king. So for those of you who know in your life, man, I've had a lot of bad things happen to me. I've done a lot of bad things. I've had a lot of people do stuff to me. And you don't think you have worth. You don't know. You don't know how much you're worth to him. You don't know. You may see and look at your life and see failure, shame. You may see ugliness when you look at yourself in the mirror. Man, do you know how your groom sees you? Do you know how your groom sees you? 
You're the bride of Christ. Additionally, it's a call to men. We, we saw this theme develop last week. Abraham failed and a woman suffered. Isaac failed and a woman suffered. You see the failure of men leading to the direct suffering of women. Men, I've said it before and I'll continue to say it. Part of the reason why God put you on this earth is so that you would protect and care for women and children. It's part of the reason why you're here on God's earth. We live in a culture that wants to flatten gender differences as if there's nothing different between men and women. When men begin to treat women like they treat other men, women suffer. And the next to suffer will be children. Men, you have a divine sacred duty to be a protector and nurturer of women and children. And the blindness in our culture is thinking that there's no difference between men and women, and so we treat them as if there is no distinction. And what happens is men start to treat women like men. And it's to women's detriment. We are equal image bearers before God, but there's a world of difference in how we operate. Men, you are put on earth to be protectors and nurturers. And when men fail at that, women suffer. But the story that the Bible is telling in the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Tamar, and now with Rahab is that even though earthly men might have failed, the heavenly father has not. He has not abandoned you or forsaken you, and he's brought you into his family and to his fold. Now, the means, the mechanism by which Rahab is saved in this story is interesting. It's a scarlet cord. Now, again, if you're a Christian, you're immediately going like, oh, what could that scarlet cord represent? Hmm, it's red and it brings salvation. That's got to be the blood of Jesus. That's representing the blood of Jesus. It's not the blood of Jesus. The scarlet thread is not about the blood of Jesus. Scarlet, of course, not about the blood of Jesus. It's about something else. In the story, we are just after the Exodus period. And the Exodus period climaxes with God's deliverance of Israel from slavery. And he celebrates this deliverance with a holiday, right? Excuse me, there's a big holiday in celebration. It's called Passover. And also, by the way, in the book of Joshua, they just are about to celebrate Passover in the text. But more importantly... The Exodus story is culminated with this, this holiday of Passover. And what do you do with Passover? You get the blood of a lamb, it's red, you put it on your doorpost. And as destruction goes over you, as long as you have the red on your door, the destruction passes over you and you and whoever else is in your house is saved. This is in the minds of the readers of Joshua. So what is coming? For Rahab, what's the word used? Do you remember? Destruction. And they say, as long as you have the scarlet cord hanging out of your window, the destruction should pass over you. This is pointing to Passover, which is incredibly important because at the beginning of the book of Joshua, there is a Passover for a prostitute. You understand this? There's a Passover for a prostitute. Now, Scarlet cord isn't about the blood of Jesus. It's about Passover. But what's Passover about? It's about Jesus. Because <laughs> it's always, always, always about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. So directly it goes to this, and then this goes to this, and this goes to this. This is about Jesus. Now this theme of the scarlet cord is found elsewhere in scripture. And I want to show you just briefly it, and then show you how like, Throughout human history, some traditions have arisen out of it. 
Rahab is saved by the scarlet cord. And that same cord is like a thread running throughout scripture. So in the story of Tamar from last week, first woman in Jesus' genealogy, there was a scarlet cord. Do you remember? One of the, the children has a scarlet cord tied around their wrist. Rahab is saved by the scarlet cord. The temple curtains in the temple have scarlet cords through them. The high priest's garments have <clears throat> temp, uh, scarlet cords going through them. In the book of Isaiah, there's a verse that's associated, and we're going to see how it's associated in a minute with the idea of these cords. But it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And so this verse and all these places in scripture begin to develop this theme and it's never, it's never quite fully fleshed out in the Old Testament. So as people look upon this theme never being fully fleshed out, certain traditions develop and the traditions come from a lot of different places. One of the most famous ones is in something called Kabbalah, which is Jewish mysticism. It's a form of Jewish mysticism and in Kabbalah, people will often put a red cord around their wrist and it's said that this will... Um, fight off the evil eye or bad, uh, bad energy or bad spirits. This is very popular. It's extremely popular in Hollywood. That's Madonna with the red cord. Leo. Ariana Grande. Now some of you might think I'm old and lame because I said Grande. He's like, um, he's trying to be, it's Grande. Uh, no, it's not actually. YouTube it. She'll tell you the proper way how to pronounce her name. It's Italian. Not grande, it's not Spanish, it's Italian roots, grande. Uh, that girl from that movie Ghost. Um, oh my lord, that was a weird movie. That was a very weird movie. Uh, Paris Hilton, Michael Jackson, Miley Cyrus, Ashton Kutcher. They're all rocking it. And it's because in, in Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, which they kind of practice a light form of it, uh, it's said to you know, fight off the bad energy or the bad spirits or the evil eye. That's one of the traditions that come out of this like never fully developed red cord theme. There's another one that developed in the time leading up to Jesus. <clears throat> and it had to deal with uh, something that occurred on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the ho holiest day on the Jewish calendar. And one of the things that took place at this time is there was a ceremony called the scapegoat. And what Jews would do traditionally in the Old Testament is you'd get a goat. It's kind of, this is, this is going to sound weird to us, but back in the day, everyone thought it was normal. You take the goat and you symbolically put the sins of the entire nation on the goat and you put it on its head. And then what you do is you kick the goat out of the city into the wilderness and you're like, bye-bye sins. He's taking them. The goat symbolically carries the sins of the entire nation upon him and you kick him out of the city, and with him goes all the sin, and now God has forgiven you. Now, leading up to the time of Jesus, a tradition develops. A tradition that put a red cord on the top of the goat's head. And they put this red cord on top of the goat's head. And there's different opinions of how this developed. Most likely it developed because there was another goat that was taken into the Holy of Holies and they wanted to distinguish them. And so one goat that was led in one direction had the red cord tied around his neck and the other one upon his head, upon his crown. And this goat, this poor goat, man. They're in a, you know, 
put the sins of the entire nation for the whole year on his head and they put that red cord and then they kick him out of the city. <clears throat> now what's recorded in a Jewish, big giant Jewish document called the Talmud is the development of this. And before the time of Jesus, there was something miraculous that was said to occur almost every year. And they said that the priests would cut a part of the red cord off the, off the, the goat and they would place that part of the red cord on the door to the sanctuary in the temple. And what was said to occur is that when the goat had finally gone far enough, taking away the sins of the world, that the way you knew God had truly forgiven Israel was that the cord that was red on the sanctuary door would turn white. Remember Isaiah? Though your sins be like scarlet, they'll be white as wool. So this idea was there, that as the goat leaves kicking the sin out of us. He's going outside of the city into the wilderness. When God accepts that offering, he miraculously would turn the remaining cord white to signify that the, the ceremony worked and sins have been forgiven. Now this is crazy. In that same document, the Talmud, it's huge. If, you have any, if you're familiar with this stuff, it's tons and tons of writing. They reflect on this ceremony and they reflect on the miracle that occurs. And it says that roughly 40 years before the destruction of the temple, something occurred. Now pause for a second. The destruction of the temple occurs when? 70 AD. The rabbis are talking about something that occurs roughly 40 years before 70 AD. So we're talking sometime around 30 AD. You got it? Following. This is Talmud, Yoma 39b. The rabbis taught that 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple, a lot did not come up in the high priest's right hand, nor did the scarlet wool become white. Didn't work. Now the question then is, well, is, did God stop forgiving sins? No, God didn't stop forgiving sins. But the temple and the sacrifices, the red cords, they were no longer the means or mechanism by which God was going to forgive his people. Because the sacrifice of sacrifices, the true scapegoat, the true lamb of God would be sacrificed for the sins, not just of Israel for the year, but for humanity for all time. And so it's no longer by the blood of bulls or goats that forgiveness occurs. It's through the sacrifice of the Son of God. And so red cords around wrist and, and sacrifices, all of these things are symbols that are trying to point to that which is the true actual. And the true actual has occurred. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, slain before the foundation of the world for the sins of men. And because of that forgiveness, now this God has the ability to invite anybody, anywhere, at any time, into his family. The usher's gonna pass out communion. Now, how does this occur? Who's on the inside, who's on the outside? Jesus Christ is king, right? So when the king comes, where do you think he should live? In the center 
of this city in his palace. And should he be on the inside or the outside? He's gonna be the most ultimate insider of all time. This is the king. Everyone knows the king. He's a good king. But what happens to the true king of kings when he comes to earth? He doesn't establish a throne in the center of the city. He is rejected, cast out. And where is he led? He's led outside of the city walls to be rejected and die the slave's death. He dies the outcast death. He dies on the Roman cross in pain and agony. Now follow this here. In the time leading up to Jesus, people every year saw a goat carrying the sins of the world on its head. And that was symbolically represented with a red cord around his head. And every year they saw this goat leave the city and get kicked out of the city, ultimately to die outside of the city walls. And this goat carried the weight of the sins of the world on its head. When the king comes, he is rejected. He is made to be the outcast and made to die as the slave's death. And what did the people witness? Jesus Christ marching outside of the city with what on his head? Crown of thorns. What does the crown of thorns represent? One, first, that he's king. But two, where do thorns come from? Genesis, the curse. It's because of sin that there's thorns and thistles. And so the symbol of sin is placed on the king's head as he's led out of the city walls to die the slave's death. And he does this so that you who are on the outside might be brought inside. And in this sense, we were all like Rahab, living as women in the city walls a life of shame and pain. We've done wrong and wrong has been done to us. And even though we're the last person in the world who ought to be invited to the king's banquet, this king says, make sure they get the invitation. And he invites you in and you become a son or daughter of the true king of kings and lord of lords. You are never too far off from his grace. And if you don't feel it, I need you to know deep in your bones, you are more loved than you could ever, ever dream of. Christ died for you. You don't know what you look like when the groom looks at you. He doesn't see what you see. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, by his family, by his friends, by his people, by his city. The king knows the death that awaits and he says, this is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance. Likewise, he takes the cup. This is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you is what Jesus says. It's no longer the shedding of goats or bulls or lambs that pleases God or ushers in forgiveness. 
It's the laying down of the life of the Son of God. And so, Lord, we want to give you thanks for what you did on our behalf, that we were people living in the city walls, outcast with shame and hurt and pain, sin done to us and sin we've done to others, but you saw fit to give us your grace, to bless us with the adoption that we would be brought into your family, that we would know grace and forgiveness. And so, Lord, I pray for those in this room who have built up emotional walls in their life where they they cannot feel and they deny that they are loved and that they are valuable. And so right now in this moment, break away those walls, lower their guards, remind them of your love, give them your grace and your comfort. May your spirit wash over them and may they Trust that your opinion of them is more important than their opinion of themselves. We love you. I ask that this church can focus on the real stuff behind Christmas. Your son coming to save us, coming in the most vulnerable way, dying in the most vulnerable way, and we don't get caught up in the hype of consumerism. May we focus on what's important. Bless these people. Help us to be a kind, merciful, generous people. Give us eyes to see the, way, the, the, the world the way you see the world, Lord. We love you. We have faith. We, we need more of it. We need to trust you more, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our prayer team will be up front. If some of you need to talk through anything, you need some prayer about anything, please come up. That's what, that's what they're there for.